Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning again. Uh, And we are continuing today with our uh, series on praise and worship. Woohoo! Great big thanks, by the way, to uh, Matt Gordon, Sherry Gordon, for planning and coordinating the mystery dinner last night. What a great time that was, and a huge thanks to everyone. There, and there were a lot of you who spent the hours setting this room up and decorating it. The place looked great, and there were a lot of people involved in getting us there. And wow, did it come back together fast. Uh, man, we had this, this place put back together very, very quickly after the thing was over last night. Cleanup just went like a dream. And uh, I just, I, I get excited. I was excited Wednesday night when we were hauling chairs out of here. I'll tell you a quick story. And this is not, you know, I had a great healing testimony last Wednesday, and Pastor Mike just shared one. This is not like that. It's a different kind of testimony. When I was attending uh, Grace Fellowship when I was a Rama student, uh, I loved going to church. I loved sitting under the teaching of Bob Yandian, and, and that's something we can talk about in some other context sometime. Uh, but different things appeal to different people. And uh, for me, it was often just enough just to be there and hear this man teach. Uh, praise and worship was great too, but I wasn't around enough. You know, I was a full-time student working a full-time job. I couldn't always be there on Wednesday nights, but I would get there when I could. But I was there. They did have Sunday night service, so I went every Sunday morning and Sunday night. And... Uh, but I couldn't because of the times, different places, uh, uh, different things met. Small groups, things like that were out of the question for me. It wasn't in my schedule. And so, uh, and they did have, you know, uh, I think they ran concurrent with the main service. If you wanted to go, here was a singles group, here was that. But I wanted to be there in the sanctuary uh, uh, listening to Pastor Bob and whatnot. And uh, all that to say, I wasn't making a lot of connections. I was being fed and I loved it. Uh, and, and in that sense, I was satisfied. But on Sunday nights, because the sanctuary doubled as a gymnasium for the school, all of the chairs, and this was a large, you know, they probably seated somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people in chairs, stackable chairs in the sanctuary. But all those chairs had to be put away on Sunday night for school the next morning. And uh, that was my ministry. I would stay after every Sunday night and stack chairs. And you know what? I was part of a community of chair stackers. It might sound silly, but I felt a connection with that church. Listen to me. I loved the church and attended faithfully, and I gave because of the ministry that was coming from the pulpit. But the connection I felt with that church didn't really click until I started stacking chairs. Uh, and I would, you know, and, the, and then the next thing you know, no, that's as far as I went. That's as far up the ministry ladder as I climbed at Grace Fellowship. I wasn't looking for an end to something else. I just wanted to connect and serve. And you can find something to do wherever you are. Amen? Amen. Anyway, thank you guys for stacking, unstacking, lining up, measuring, cleaning, vacuuming, everything that happened last night to make last night happen and to get us ready for this morning. You guys are a blessing. And uh, anyway... We're in this series on praise and worship. I shared some super important stuff last week, so, uh, and that was the first message in the series, so it's not too late. I encourage you to go back, listen online, download the, po- load the podcast, whatever you do, 
And I also mentioned a book and recommended a book by Zach Neese called How to Worship a King. I don't know um, how many of you have that, how many of you have read it. If you haven't bought a hard copy, it's actually available on Kindle for under $10. Uh, I know this because I lost my hard copy or I lent it out to, loaned it out to somebody and never got it back or forget who I gave it to. Uh, so I have it on Kindle now. Uh, so if you want to go that route. But uh, two things that I want to remind you for now from, uh, about, from last week for now, and then we'll move on to something. And we're going to be moving a little bit slow, uh, slowly through this. And, and, but it will pick up. We'll get into some specifics of praise and worship, um, but not, not necessarily this morning. One of the things I want to share with you this morning is uh, a reminder from last week. And I read this twice last week. I'll just read it once today. This is the definition of worship as given by Archbishop Temple. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind by his truth, uh, with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. And the other thing I wanted to remind you, because we'll be kind of uh, looking at this same thing from a different scripture and a different angle today, are the two words that Jesus used when he was tempted by Satan. Remember the wilderness uh, temptation episode? Right after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the, by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. And uh, on the last temptation of the three, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, I'll give you all of these if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus responded, uh, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And we looked at these two words, worship and serve. And the worship there, uh, proskuneo, where we get the word prostrate, the bowing down, uh, that's the word that means uh, like licking a, ma- a dog licking a master's hand. There's a, a kiss wrapped up in that word, okay? And... Uh, and the other word, the serve, the latrio, which is the service. And it does mean the service as in, you know, even stacking chairs can be a latrio. But it's, it's really, that's where we get the word liturgy. So the raising of the hands, the singing, the clapping, the formal worship, what we call praise and worship, that's our latrio. Uh, so we use the word worship, and we think of the, the prostration and, the, and the, the, the bowing down. And that's kind of what we think. When we, when, when we think, if we were to guess which of these words do we apply to our praise and worship service, we would kind of be inclined to say, oh, that's the, that's the um, proscuneo. But it's not. It's a latrio. It's our formal worship. And what we talked about last week is for our latrio to be genuine, it has to come from a heart of proscuneo. That worshipfulness in us finds expression in the latrio, the raising of the hands, the singing, the clapping, the outward manifestations of our praise and worship, right? So, when you see the word serve then, when him only shall you serve, it'll help you to keep those two terms straight if you think of the word serve and service as in worship service. Okay, that's the serve part there. It includes other service as well. But this is part of our, our worship service is part of how we latriuo, liturgy, serve him. All right? Now I'm going to do something a little bit risky here in a little bit. Not super risky. I'll explain that here in a, little, in, in a while. But one of the, my favorite passages, and I admit I have a lot of them in the Old Testament, is in 2 Kings 17. And you can turn there. We're not going to read it right this second. But you can open your Bibles to 2 Kings 17. 
and uh, Nice. Zach Nice actually refers to this episode in his book, but he doesn't take it very far. And it's been a while since we did a review, and we don't have time to do a review uh, of the Old Testament. But just, I think you'll remember, most of you anyway, that after God established the monarchy, you remember this is after the Exodus, after bringing them into the land of promise, after, after the death of Joshua, then you had 300 years or so uh, where there was no king in Israel. They had what they called judges, men that would, God would raise up to... Uh, lead armies and, and get rid of their enemies and so forth. And always this happened at a time of national repentance after the nation of Israel had sunk into sin and, and disregard for the, for the law. And then the, the, the people, they, cried, they, they, they made it known that we want a king. Give us a king like the nations. And God said, I want to be your king, but if you want a king, I'll give you one. So he gave him Saul. After Saul, David ascended to the throne, and he's the one, he's still considered... Uh, in Scripture, the greatest king of Israel. He's the one that, that where, uh, it was under David that they expanded to the borders that God had originally set, uh, set for them. And he subdued all of his enemies. And after David, his son Solomon inherited the throne and a kingdom of peace. He ruled over a peaceful, prosperous Israel. And then when he died, his son Rehoboam ascended to the throne. And Rehoboam, was, he ruled unwisely. He surrounded himself with inexperienced, unwise counselors uh, who essentially uh, led him to set some things into law in the land that led to a tax revolt. And 10 of the 12 tribes split off and formed their own nation, which then through the rest of the Kings and Chronicles uh, became known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel. Their capital was in Samaria. So after that, Whenever you see about the king of Israel and the king of Judah, you're talking about what used to be the united kingdom of Israel and then became the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Southern kingdom of Judah, capital in Jerusalem. And so we go through this series, a few hundred years, of all bad kings in the north and mostly bad kings in the south. Uh, And throughout all of this mess. Whenever you had a bad king, the country would essentially follow this bad king into sin. He would cause their nation to sin. And God sent prophets. God sent warnings. You have got to turn back to me. Stop worshiping these idols of the nations around you. You're not to be like them. You're not to worship like them. You have a God that lives and they don't. You need to be different. I've called you to be different. I've commanded you to be different. I've given you a law that's different. But they wouldn't. And God told them and told them and told them, if you don't turn from these other gods, it's going to lead to your destruction. And it did. Finally, 722 B.C., I think, uh, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel. They took, uh, they took Samaria and they carried the, the inhabitants of Samaria away. And without going into a great deal of detail, what the Assyrians did essentially was to dilute the Israelites. They spread them around the land that they owned. And uh, by the time of Jesus, what, we, what remained of them were considered half-breeds by the true Jews. Uh, they, they, were, they were dismissed as Samaritans. These were the, they weren't pure Jews anymore because they, their population had been diluted through intermarriage and everything uh, after the captivity of the Assyrians. But after they took the Israelites out of Samaria, the Assyrians brought in people, uh, their own people and other people that they had 
uh, you know, taken their cities and countries before, and they populated the capital, Samaria, with them. So they moved the true Israelites out. They moved Assyrians and Assyrian captives in to this city. And this is where we'll pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 17, and I'm not even there. Hang on a second. 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing, him, killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Then one of the priests who came, sorry, one of the priests who they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Sukoth, Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibnaz and Tartak, and all these other things. So skip down to verse 32. And they feared the Lord, and from every, so they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of high office, Uh, Sorry, high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods, according to the rituals of the nations, nations among whom they were carried away. Now, this is really something. They move into this city, and lions, there's an epidemic. It's not lions. It would be a news story if a lion went running through your town and killed a few people. This is, uh, this is something that's it's much, this is obviously a much bigger problem. The Lord sent lions, and they were killing people, and it got to be such a problem that they took it to the king. Interestingly, the people who were reporting it to the king knew what the issue was. They knew there was something supernatural about this. This is not just a... You know, it's kind of, it's still, it's, it's photo worthy when you see wildlife in the city. You know, a fox looking in a garbage can on a city street or a, or a bear wandering into town or something like that. It happens, but it's not supposed to happen. It's pretty rare. And here these lions are coming into the inhabited areas and killing people. And so there's something supernatural behind this. We just got in here. Clearly, we don't know, understand the God of this land. So the king, they'll send a Jewish priest over there. He'll teach him. And he does teaches them to fear the Lord. Now, this is the rough equivalent, the Old Testament word here is the rough equivalent when Jesus said worship. It is the proskuneo of the Old Testament. And it's actually the same word, this word fear, is, is the same where Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it says worship the Lord your God and serve only him. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. Uh, the, the yare and abad, if you're interested, those are the Hebrew words that roughly translate to the proskuneo and the latriuo, or worship and serve. They had something in them when this priest came that, that truly feared and respected and recognized the Lord. 
but it didn't translate to serving him. Here's the weird thing. To me, it's weird. Apparently, it stopped the lions. When they feared the Lord, the lions stopped. And here's the risky part. And it's only a small risk because I'm not going to make a categorical statement in terms of yes or no. It's just a risk theologically by raising the possibility. When a person makes a confession unto salvation, a confession of faith unto salvation, whatever brings them to that point. You know, we were all at different places in our lives when we responded to the truth of the gospel. Sometimes our eyes were simply open to the truth and we're like, I live in a real world. This is a real God. I'm not going to pretend he doesn't exist. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to serve him. Some of us came to him in desperation because our lives were a wreck. Some of us were raised in the faith. But however it happens, when, you make a, when anybody makes a confession of faith unto salvation, what in addition to that does God require for salvation itself? Nothing. Right? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, what? You shall be saved. What if I could convince you? I would not want to. Stick with me through this. All right? Man, you could walk away. You could walk out of here today with the exact opposite of what I'm trying to teach you if you don't listen to this all the way through. What if I could convince you that you could be just saved? but not completely give your lives to the Lord. And in this scenario, I would use the lions as an illustration of hell. If I could simply remove the threat of hell, if you would just fear the Lord, acknowledge that he is God, and confess unto salvation, making confession of faith unto salvation, and you didn't have to do anything else, how many of you would want to? Don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand. Because, of course, this is precisely how a lot of Christians are living. And the people of Israel had lived that way for hundreds of years before they were carried out of Samaria. And that sad, sad statement in verse 33, 2 Kings seventeen thirty-three, they feared the Lord yet served their own gods. And it appears in verse 41 too, these nations feared the Lord yet served their carved images. That's talking about the Assyrians. The sad thing about it is that verse applied just as truly to the Israelites who lived there before. It was their God. They feared him, but they didn't serve him. That's why they were carried away. Two things I want you to think about. And it goes back to, to the salvation experience of Israel. You know... We know how it's supposed to be. We believe that salvation isn't something that you slowly achieve. Salvation is a moment. It's like a birth. That's why Jesus calls it the new birth. We move from darkness to light, from death to life, with a confession, with a belief, right? But we know, we know, because we're all mature believers here, we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we love our Father, and we want to grow in grace. Right? Okay. So we know there's more to it than that. But when you look at the parallel experience in the Old Testament, their moment of salvation was the exodus. That's when God took them out 
of slavery out of Egypt, brought them out of bondage. But he didn't just say, all right, you called me to get you out from under Pharaoh's thumb. You called me to get you out of the slavery, and I did. There you go. Have fun. I saved you. He didn't stop there, did he? No. He made him camp out. He appeared to them in a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, smoke and fire on the mountain, and he gave them his law. He didn't say, and he did great and mighty deeds just to get them out of Egypt. But once he got them there, he gave them the law, and included in that law were long, specific details of how to worship him. This is something of things we're going to look at. And it's one of the most boring passages you will read about the construction of the tabernacle. It's like 10 solid chapters of get this many feet of this material, put this many rivets, this many sockets, this many hooks, put them this far apart all the way around here. Then you make another curtain out of this type of material. Use this kind of hook. It has to be made out of this kind of metal. Put them exactly this far apart. And you're, oh. But what's he saying? As we're going to see, one of the things that God is saying is there is such a thing as a right way to approach me. He could have just said, go build me something. Build, throw a tent together. Doesn't matter what it looks like. No, he's giving them some specific instructions about how to approach him. He told them how to worship him. He told them how to serve him. And get this, it wasn't a, look, you owe me this. I did a lot for you. So I know what I'm asking you is hard, but you owe me. It wasn't that. That wasn't God's message. His message was, I brought you out for myself. You're my people. I love you. And if you will live this way, your lives will be so much better, so much richer, so radically different from the nations around you. You're going to be a completely different nation. And the people, it's going to be so good. It's going to be different, but different in such a good way that the nations around you are going to say, surely God is in their midst. That doesn't sound like a bad way to live. Without you saying a word, people look at him and say, wow, God's on his side. Only way to explain that kind of life is if God's with him. How many of you be okay with that? And he wanted this for their nation. But when they didn't live like that, well, we read it. And we find ourselves kind of standing with God saying, how could you guys do this? How could you not live wholeheartedly for the God who saved you like that? Not just because of what he did, but because of what he offers and what he promises, right? But you see, it's worse than that even. The very gods that they were serving were leading them to destruction simply by virtue of there being no gods at all. The gods they were serving were not gods. And so they were investing their lives, their passion, and their worship into things that could do nothing for them. And so they were being led to destruction. You remember Wednesday night we were talking about the prodigal son and we were talking about how sometimes God says no. Showed you some examples of when Jesus said no and how we as parents have to say no no matter how much we love our children. We faced a, a moment when our kids are making a choice that's not healthy, not godly, not a good one. And the day might come when they decide to make a choice 
talking about our children, that we know is wrong, but we can't keep them from making. But we don't bless it, do we? And we don't finance it, do we? And the example we gave with the prodigal son is, you know, when he left, his father didn't support his decision, but he didn't bless him with a gift. He gave him his part, the part that was going to fall to him anyway. This, what you need to see that for the, the, the parable to make sense is he gave him this. It was, it was the part of the inheritance that was going to be his anyway. And when the prodigal came to himself, when he ran out of money, it doesn't say that he then... Uh, got a great idea and wrote home and said, Dad, I'm out of money, send more. He knew Dad wouldn't have. And he was rightly, would have been much too embarrassed to do that. What did he do instead? He came home. And he came home to a welcome that was much greater, much grander, much richer than he had any right to expect. And this was God saying, you continue to make this choice. I'm not going to stop you, but I'm not going to facilitate it. I'm not going to finance it. I'm not going to bless it. You're on your own. And if we, as New Testament believers, decide to live essentially like the world, we will discover that God is under no obligation to bless us in those pursuits. We still fear the Lord, though, only insofar as we don't go, uh, we don't renounce our faith. We all know people like this. Many of us in this room have probably been in in seasons like this in our own lives. We're not living like Christians. We're living like the world. And yet if anybody asked us, what would we say? Yeah, I'm still a believer. I still believe. And are we saved in those still? When we're we're walking like that, when we're living like that? I, I think we are. I think it's hard to lose your salvation. And tying this to 2 Kings, again, we're saved, the lions leave. But why would we choose this life? Why would we not live passionately and pursuing and cultivating a relationship with the God who paid so much so he could have that relationship with us, who paid so much to save us in the first place? And... This is the scary part. We find, at least many have found, that they wake up one day, after living like this for a while, they wake up one day and say, wait, do I really believe this? People will renounce the faith and have renounced the faith. But I have never, ever, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaking, a seed begging bread. I've never seen somebody who is in the middle of actively, passionately serving God wake up one day and say, you know, this really doesn't make sense. Logically, God doesn't make sense. No, the person who wakes up one day and suddenly starts to th- realize, huh, I don't think I believe anymore, is the person who has already been living like an unbeliever for some time. I had this crisis of faith. I was 23 years old. I've told you about four. I'm not going to share the story right now, but I had been, it was during my longest stay down at Fort Benning, during my officer basic course. I had not been, I didn't turn my back on God. I didn't renounce my faith. I just was, there was nothing about my life, really nothing, I would say next to nothing, okay, uh, that, that would have identified me as any different from any one of the, the, the guys that I'm serving with, hanging out with. 
And in the middle of an exercise at night, it just, out of the blue, the thought came to me, do I even know God is real? It never even occurred to me to question God's existence before that. And the good that came out of that is uh, it wasn't long after that that I was back home and I began to do some apologetics research. It didn't take me long to be convinced from both a faith aspect and a evidence and evidence aspect that God is indeed real. But there's a very real possibility that our lack of attention and passion regarding our worship will lead to a literal walking away from the faith. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning. To mature in wisdom, we have to serve in response to that fear. That holy reverence, that heart of worship. When I say fear, you understand it's, it does carry the meaning of being afraid and frightened, but it's more just an awesome uh, a recognition of the awesome reality of God. God is real, this worshipful reverence of God. And I said last week that for our latriuo, our service, our worship service, to be genuine, for it to be real, for it to be meaningful, that the proscuneo has to be there first. Genuine worship service comes from a real heart of service. Genuine latriuo is an expression of our proscuneo. What I'm saying this week, is kind of turning it around a little bit, is that for the proscuneo, for the heart of worship to be mature and enduring, it must produce the latriuo. The latriuo, the praise and worship, the singing, and the service and the works really are meaningless if they're not coming from a heart of worship. But a heart of worship that does not produce and lead to singing, uh, worshiping, uh, and service is an immature. It is just the beginning. Fear of the Lord is only the beginning of wisdom. It has to grow and produce works. It, Faith without works is dead, is the New Testament version of that, okay? So, we must actively serve him, and one of the most emphasized ways we do that, according to the word of God, is with our praise, with our songs, with our instruments, with our voices, and with our bodies. That's why we try to involve the whole body uh, during times of praise and worship. And yes, of course, it does speak also to serving in the church, filling those needs, teaching in Sunday school, serving as an usher, cleaning, uh, the number of ways that you, can, that you can serve, that we want you to serve, meeting the needs of the body, but also blessing our community. But the first and the purest manifestation of our service is the active, intentional, dedicated act of, of worship. Understand? It's this. It's what, again, when we say praise and worship, that is the purest, most scriptural manifestation of our latreo, our, our liturgy coming from our heart of worship. Worship in the heart is expressed in the worship service. Now, I want you to stand up, 
And I'm going to make an invitation to you, and I'm going to give you some instructions, because one of the things we are going to get into, hopefully next week, are some specifics. If we understand the heart of worship, if we understand how our service and our heart of worship are connected, what does, what does real, biblical praise and worship, what should it look like in our church on Sundays and Wednesdays? What should it sound like? What should we, is there anything we should be doing other than singing along? Maybe clapping if I have rhythm. Uh, should I sing louder if I have a good voice? Should I sing quieter out of uh, respect for the people around me if I have a bad voice? Is there anybody besides the praise and worship leaders who should be talking during, uh, between the songs? What are we supposed to be doing? And we're going to get there. But I'm going to give you one specific this morning here in just a second. I'm going to make this invitation, and you can be thinking about this while I make, uh, make the next point. Worship is an awesome privilege and the correct and right response to God's goodness. When we see how good God has been, what he has taken us out of, and what he has put us into, and what he promises, the right response, the intelligent response, the spiritual response, is just to give him praise, give him the worship that he's due. It shouldn't be hard. But it is the privilege of the believer, the born-again man and woman, the child of God. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.